can turn in your Bibles to Romans chapter 12, a well-known portion of Scripture to most of you. If not, I think you'll be in, uh, encouraged by it today. It's a, it's a pivotal text for understanding how we go from the doctrine of our faith to the practice of it. And the title of today's sermon being Authentic Christianity, we've looked at authentic faith in Romans 5. The testing of faith produces perseverance and perseverance, a proven character, a tested faith, the real deal. And so that word authentic in Romans 5 relates to that which might be outside of our control. God's bringing us through some trial, some testing, some suffering. And on the other side, you have a tested faith, an approved faith, one that survived the flame. But what we're talking about here in Romans 12 is, is Paul moving into that which we do have a responsibility for to a greater degree. This is really the, the, the passage from just that which we know to that which we will do, that which God expects of us, living a holy life in, in light of all of a holy God has done for us. And um, our Christian lives, and we'll see this in Romans 12, 1 to 5, are lived out in relationships. First and foremost, you are in Christ. And so your primary relationship you're always keeping an eye on, if you will, is your relationship to God in Christ. And you live in that all the time as a believer. No matter where you go, anytime, always, you're in Christ. All of your life belonging to Him. Uh, but it does move out from there for life in the church. That, that every real Christian is part of not just the church at large, universally speaking, but a local church because you've been given gifts by God through the Spirit to, to be used for the benefit of others around you, to build up the body of Christ. So you exist in Christ. And then if we're thinking in you know, uh, a bullseye moving out in those circles, the next one would be in the church. But then the widest one is in the world. We all still live in the world. And in a time like this where you say, I wish it wasn't so. I wish as a church we didn't have to deal with that out there. Well, God has left us here. To be his agents of kingdom influence, salt and light, in a world that we can very well see going, what, in a way of darkness, under the curse still of sin, and following the prince of the power of the air and the spirit of the age that tells us that there is no God, and if there is, he's, he, he's indifferent, he's impotent, he can't control anything, he doesn't care, and we live in that world, and it wants to send us that message, but we know what the truth of the Word of God says. And so we live in that world as well, pressing in on us and around us. And what are we to do? Well, we're to be an influence in it. And so today I want to look at those three circles, our life in Christ and in the church and in the world, and see that what does real Christianity look like in action in those three relationships? In your devotion to God, in your distinction from the world, and then in your dedication to the church. So uh, follow along with me as I read Romans 12. Uh, the first five verses that take us through a, a walk through all of those relationships in a way that I believe will motivate us as we leave this morning to live the Christian life, a real, authentic witness in a world that needs it. So starting in verse 1, Therefore I urge you, brethren, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies a living and holy sacrifice, acceptable to God, which is your spiritual service of worship, and do not be conformed to the world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, so that you may prove what the will of God is, that which is good and acceptable and perfect. For through the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you, 
not to think more highly of himself than he ought to think, but to think so as to have sound judgment, as God has allotted to each a measure of faith. For just as we have many members in one body, and all the members do not have the same function, so we who are many are one body in Christ, and individually members of one another. So reads the living and active word of God. May he train us in his righteous ways today through it. Well, as I mentioned earlier, there is a bridge in the book of Romans that now is crossed from your doctrine to your practice. Romans 1 to 11 is all of what we believe and we rejoice in and we sing about all that God has done for us in salvation. And in the first 11 chapters of this wonderful book in the Bible, Romans, are Paul's way of putting that on display, of saying, hey, for 11 chapters inspired by the Spirit, I want to tell you just how good the gospel is. I want to just tell you just how great your salvation is. And that's what he does for Romans 1 through 11. Now there is, Romans 1 through 3, a lot of bad news about our sinfulness, our depravity, uh, what, what is going against us. And then you get a glimpse of good news at the end of Romans 3 and in the chapter 4, which says, God has worked a plan for you that Jesus Christ has died for sinners. And when you put your faith in him, you can now be forgiven. And so the first great therefore of the book of Romans isn't in uh, Romans chapter 12 where we are. It's in Romans chapter 5. And we've been there the last month. Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through Jesus Christ. And that's, that's really good news. We stand before God at peace with him, not as enemies. We stand in his grace, not trying to work our way back to him. And we have hope for eternity in his glory. And that's the first great therefore in Romans. That's the therefore of your innocence, of your you're not guilty, comes in Romans 5.1. That's a great therefore passage. That you need to know where it's at and remember it. When you're remembering how good is your salvation, you have to go back to Romans 1 through 3 and see how bad was our depravity in our sinfulness, in our hopelessness and helplessness to save ourselves. But there is another therefore that Paul wanted you to know, and that comes from Romans 5, 6, 7 into chapter 8. Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. That's the therefore of your assurance. What's your assurance? That because God has pronounced you right in chapter 5 and you're justified, Romans 5, 6, and 7 that take you on a little journey through your following Jesus faithfully, your sanctification, your two steps forward, three steps back, real faith. There will be times in your sin you might feel like, I'm condemned. God's given up on me. Uh, you, you hear it in, in Paul in Romans chapter 7 because he's going back and forth thinking through, man, I, the sin that I don't want to do, I still find myself in my flesh doing it. And the righteousness that I'm supposed to be doing, the, the right things, I find myself not wanting to do. Wretched man that I am, who will save me from this body of death? But thanks be to God who gives us victory through the Lord Jesus Christ. And then you get, therefore, hey, I, I, I don't lose my salvation. God doesn't give up on me. There's no condemnation in him. He can't reverse his position towards me because I am justified by faith. So you have a therefore, not just of your innocence in Romans 5.1, 
and not just of your assurance in Romans 8.1. Now you get a therefore in Romans chapter 12 where we are today. It's a therefore of your devotion. In light of all that God has done for you, believer. Now what does he expect of you? But he spent way more time tipping the scale to everything he's done for you. This isn't about finding balance. That wonderful word, that elusive word. I need balance in my Christian life. Friend, the scales of salvation are not balanced. All that God has done for you in Christ, you can never put enough on your side now to balance out and say, see, I'm doing my share too. No, Romans 1-11 shows us that God has, has overwhelmingly done more than we could have ever imagined for us. But now you get to Romans chapter 12 and there's a bridge built in light of all that God has done for you. Therefore, what does he expect of us? And why I particularly wanted to preach this passage today is because as we launch into the summer, we're going to go into uh, the book of Proverbs, which is chock full of the practical admonitions from King Solomon uh, to people wanting to live according to God's wisdom in a world against God. And so there'll be a lot of commands and do this. And sometimes we can just rush into that and not build that bridge between what it is that I know about my salvation and what's expected of me. And there's no better place in Scripture to see that bridge being built than here in Romans 12.1. And it's because of that wonderful word, therefore. That Paul wants you to see that in light of everything that you say you believe, now this will determine how you behave. I mean, you live that way, right? What you truly believe, the convictions you carry, determine how you live. This is in every aspect of life. What you believe about your job and um, punctuality, your convictions on being on time for work, what do they dictate? Whether you hit snooze or whether you get your day going when the alarm goes off. Why? Because you have a conviction about that. I mean, it just, it's practical in so many different ways. It's all formed by your beliefs, and your beliefs become your convictions, and your convictions what drive you to live. Christianity is the, the, the high point of that. That how you behave, how you live as a Christian, is completely driven by the doctrine that you say you believe. And to the degree that you actually believe it, it'll show up. Or it won't. But this is what Paul wants us to see, that our, our beliefs lead to behaviors. Our doctrine always leads to practical duty. That there is no doctrine that we just believe and it hangs out there, but doesn't take legs and start walking in real faith. And likewise, you just don't live your Christian life without being what? Tethered to the things you believe from the text. Doctrine is practical and practice is doctrinal. And it goes both ways, and we see that in our text today in relation to relationships, devotion to God, distinction from the world, and dedication to the church. So let's start with our devotion to God. How does all that we say we believe about our salvation in the first 11 chapters of Romans lead us to live a life devoted to God? Because that's the foundation of our life in Christ. So let's start Romans 12.1. Therefore, we already covered that. I urge you, brothers, Paul is writing to Christians. This is a text for Christians. If you're not in Christ today, that doesn't mean you can't pay attention and get something out of it. But I want you to know on the front end, if you're not in Christ, you can't do anything with this. I could urge you to try to live this out. 
And you can try in your own strength, but that would be works-based. What's going to make you be able to do anything is what I'm about to tell you about the mercy of God. Therefore, Paul says to Christians, I urge you, I admonish you, I'm pushing you to do something. To act. What? To present your bodies a living and holy sacrifice. But he slides in there that phrase, I urge you, brothers, by the mercies of God. And in that one little phrase in verse 1, by the mercies of God is all your inspiration, all your motivation, all your capacity to actually live the Christian life. And we can never forget that. That Paul, as he is about to... Because Romans 12 through 15 is now going to give you a bunch of things to do. But when he slides that phrase that you could underline in your scripture, by the mercy of God, that's the energy you have to do it. That's the motivation you have to do it. Because God has been merciful to you. And it's not one by the mercy of God. It's plural. All the mercies of God. Which there are hundreds just in Romans alone. You want a good homework assignment this week? Maybe, uh, I can't show you it all. We'd be here all day. I wouldn't mind preaching all day, but you'd have a problem with it maybe. But it's on my own. I, I read a, an author who said, hey, for your own good, you, you want to know the balance in your life between what God has done for you and then what's expected. He said, start in Romans 1 and take... Your, your highlighter through maybe an old Bible because it's going to be a lot and mark up everything in Romans 1 through 11 that God has done for you. Underline it this week. And then in those same 11 chapters, circle all the things he tells you to do. I want to talk about imbalance. I found, I, I quitted 100. 100 things. I just, on a a 20-minute survey through Romans 1 through 11. All the, they call them indicatives. All the things that God has already done that you don't do anything about. He did it. And you, you underline those. And I stopped at 100. And then I circled in Romans 1 to 11. All the things I'm commanded to do. And I found five. Most of them were in Romans 6. You do it for yourself. See what you come up with. What does that teach us? That when he's saying here in verse 1, I urge you by the mercy of God to present your body a sacrifice to be acceptable to God. When he's saying by the mercy of God, the mercies, he wants you to remember all of them. He wants them to come back to your mind to give you the drive to do it. Because in Christ, brother and sister, you are now willing and able in a way that you never were to fulfill what God requires of you. See, here's where you were in your sin and trespasses. Here's where you were in your depravity. First and foremost, before Christ, Romans 3.11, you weren't willing from the heart. He says, there is no one who seeks for God. So, so no one is born with a divine spark, something good still in him or her that's going to seek God on their own. You're not willing as an unbeliever. It's where we get the a phrase in, in theology, total depravity or absolute inability. No one has the will to seek for God. It goes on to say in Romans 3.12, all have turned aside, together have become useless. And not only you're not willing, then it says, there is none who does good, not even one. You're not just unwilling, you're not able. 
You don't have the will to do it. You don't have the capacity to do it. That's how absolutely unable we are to come to God, to stand in His presence, to bring ourselves righteous before Him. We can't. We are not willing, nor we are able, no matter what. And why do all the false religions propose a workspace solution? Because that's the best they can do. Will yourself to get there and hope you did more good things than bad things in the end. Is that what you want to bet on for eternity? You're not willing or able to do it, but by the mercy of God, now you are both willing. You've been given a new heart, a new desire, and you've been given the Holy Spirit who also makes you now able to overcome your own resistances, to do the right thing, and now you have the Spirit empowering your life to both will and to do. Philippians 2.13, I think, summarizes what I'm trying to say very succinctly. It is God who is at work in you, Christian, both to will, there's the willingness, the desire, and to work, there's the capacity, there's your ability for His good pleasure. So work out your salvation. Work at it. Go for it. Not work for salvation, but work it out. If you know God is working on the inside of you by his mercy, he's given you the will, he's given you the ability, then you go for it too. You're willing to do it because of what Jesus did for you, and you're able to do it because of what God has done in you through the Spirit. That's good news. Not just the good news of the gospel, but if you're living the Christian life, an authentic life devoted to God, you actually can do it. You can do it. But it's because of the mercy of God. And we can be urged. And we can be inspired. And that's not called legalism. That's actually someone just saying to you, child of God, who's been given every blessing in the heavenly places, live up to your privileges. You've been given every blessing in the heavenlies in Christ. Don't live below your privileges. Don't be the person who, who lived like a miser and didn't realize all the money they had in the bank. They didn't know that they were an heir of, of millions of dollars. And so they lived miserly lives, rigid lives, boxed in lives, penny pinching rather than spending what they have. And, and what Paul is saying here is in light of the mercy of God that he has shown you, you are not a spiritual penny pincher. He's given you all the blessings he could in Christ. Sinclair Ferguson writes, if, if I'm to make any progress in my sanctification, as in my likeness to Christ, growing in holiness, the place where I must always begin is the riches of the gospel of the mercy of God to me in Christ. So now what does, if I'm motivated by the mercy of God, what does that look like in my obedience? Look back to verse 1. I present my body a living and a holy sacrifice. That's uh, Old Testament sacrificial language. It's consecration. It's taking this, this animal in the Old Testament, set apart and saying this is worthy of God. That, that's what we're to do. But it, what changes is in the Old Testament, you were taking something other than you that was valuable to you, that was killed by the priest and then put on the altar, a dead sacrifice so you can live. And now in the gospel, it's turned around, isn't it? 
One, you're not taking something else. You're taking yourself. And two, you are a living sacrifice because of someone who already died. You're not the atonement for your motivation to serve God. You're you're not the sacrifice that's atoning for your sin. Christ did that. He died and rose again. So what is your living sacrifice? It's adoration. It's praise. It's service. It's gratitude for the grace that God has shown you. It's a living sacrifice. It's, and even um, for us to contend to be a little bit um, uh, platonic in, our not, uh, or, you know, in the sense of there's, there's matter and there's spirit and spirit's good and matter is bad. So I'm just this really spiritual person and I, in theory, offer you consecrated. There's that uh, consecrated, you know, on the altar of my life. No, he's saying you, your body, the thing you can see and touch and hear and taste with, all that. All of that's his. It gets real. It should show up. Like in real ways. Not in in, in just an ideal. Oh yeah, I'm the sacrifice to live. No, like however you can imagine using your eyes and ears and brains and bodies for God's purposes, use them. Nothing of the sacrifice is left out. It's a living sacrifice and it's you. And you've been made holy by Christ. He's purified you. You're not second-guessing whether or not God will accept you as a living sacrifice. You've been made holy by Christ. You're acceptable to God. And this is your spiritual worship. So it starts in your heart because your heart is where you access this idea of God has shown me mercy and I praise him for it. But it moves from your heart to your hands, right? And to your feet. I'm motivated to move and do something. Uh, it's, it's the idea of we work in the Christian life from the root to the fruit. We look for the fruits of the Spirit in our life and, and in service to others and in evangelism. But when you don't see the fruit, you got to get back down to the roots of your life. And the root of your life is there in verse 1, the mercy of God. Your devotion to God comes from that He has first loved you. I mean, if you had a dying plant on your property or some fruit tree that's not bearing fruit, I mean, do you just take the fruit down and chop it up and dissect it and look at it and wonder, I wonder if I can, you know, pump some life into this and put some water on the fruit? No, you go to the root. You go to the base of the plant and you go, wow, I haven't watered this thing for a month. Looky here. It gets some miracle grow or gets some fertilizer, pull the weeds out. Why? Because you know if the fruit's bad, there's something wrong at the root level. Okay, don't go all horticulturists on me like, well, it could actually be some, some species of, uh, of worm. Has in fact, I know that. Well, I don't know it. I don't pay attention to it. But I follow the analogy. The problem is probably at the base. You need to water the thing. And so it is in our Christian lives. When we see ourselves maybe reticent in living a life devoted to God, we're, we're holding back. We're not living that life of sacrifice to Him, acceptable to Him. Friend, can I tell you, before you just get all fruit inspector in your life or on somebody else, go back to the gospel with them. Don't just go, did you read today? Did you pray this week? Ask why. It's a heart question. Why didn't you? What has your prayer life been like? That's a heart question. It's not just a yes or no, check the box question. That's just dealing at the fruit level. It's, I want to get to the root of my life, my motivations. And that's where devotion to God begins. But it doesn't end there. Somebody that's living a life devoted to God, 
certainly doesn't end there because Paul moves on really quickly to go from your devotion to God to your distinction from the world. He just turns the corner as if if you work on your devotion to God, it's going to show up in your distinctive living from the world. And that's our second point. And we see this in verse 2. Right after he motivates you by saying, look back at all that God has done for you in Christ and now look forward to offering your life whatever he wants to use you for. But here's what's going to push against it. The world wanting to conform you to its image. That's what the word conform there means in verse 2. It means a mold. It's, it's literally putting a stamp, like stamping something out to make one after the next of what? The way the world thinks. Live for now. Live for yourself. Do what feels good. All the ways the world wants us to conform to its ways. And Paul is saying, no, your devotion to God shows up really quickly in the way that you interact with the world. And for the history of God's people, there has never been an adaptation or assimilation to the world. It's always been to live distinct from it. Exodus 23, 2, the, the first generation of Israelites leaving Egypt, God saved them. What does he say in Exodus 23, 2? You shall not follow the masses in doing evil. Now notice I said masses, not masses in doing evil. I don't want to start some church controversy where I said, don't follow Curtis Massey and his bunch in doing evil. Come on, they've never done evil. They, they're really the picture-perfect family. But he's saying here to God's people, don't follow the masses in doing evil. You're going to be around a bunch of pagans. Don't do as the pagans do. The next generation, the first generation died in the wilderness. Next one, same, same story. Deuteronomy 18, verse 9. When you enter the land which the Lord God gives you, you shall not learn to imitate the detestable things of those nations. You're, you're separate, you're distinct, you're different. You're going to live around them. You can't change that. You're in the world. But you don't become like them. The relationship between a real Christian, a child of God in the world, is one of distinction. Not conforming to its ways. And the world will get mad at you for that, Jesus says. John 7, 7. The world hates me because I testify of it, that its deeds are evil. John 15, 8, he tells his disciples in the other room, 15, 18, if the world hates you, you know that it hated me before it hated you. And I know in today's kind of, broadly speaking, evangelicalism, there's a lot of talk of being, you know, a winsome witness, a, you know, a likable to the world because Christ is, well, he's Jesus, he's perfect, and so he's, Tender and compassionate, and he's meek and he's lowly. But when his own words, are, words about the world are, the world hates me because I testify of it that its deeds are evil, I think we have to qualify what we mean when we say we're to be a winsome witness in the world, likable to the world. Yes, as in don't be an offense as you, the way you live, are offensive to unbelievers. But your gospel message and the Christ you preach is, what does 1 Corinthians 1 and 2 say? It's a stumbling block. It's a point of foolishness and mockery, the gospel is. So you can't, you can't mess with that message. And when you live distinct from the world, they're going to be upset about that. But one thing we can never be, 1 John 2.15, is lovers of the world. Do not love the world nor the things in the world. And listen to this. 
If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. How do you know who a true Christian is? According to 1 John 2.15, they don't love the world's ways. Not just one way, one of the ways. I mean, this is, this is the world has a lot of ways they're infecting us to, to live like it, to walk like it, to talk like it. And when you see somebody professing to be a Christian, but then they lie like the world and they cheat like the world and they try to elbow their way to the top like the world, what's happened to that person? They've been conformed. They've been pressed down. And they need to kind of wake up to the reality that that's not the way that we live our lives devoted to God and also distinct from the world. We don't, that's the problem, you know, we face is the world looks at the church and thinks we kind of live dualistically, right? We say we're devoted to him in here on Sunday and we're really good and pious. But then they say, but you look just like the rest of us fighting your way to the top out there. We're not distinct. And that should never be. That there should be a consistency. That the, the God we love here and worship here and the desire we have to live for him here goes right out those doors and sticks with us, with us throughout the week. Now, how do we do this? You may say, Adam, you've, made it, you've pointed out the problem. Don't be conformed to this world. Be distinct. So what's the solution? Verse 2 has it. But be transformed by the renewing of your mind. So the first thing, the, the antithesis to the don't be conformed is now, but be transformed and that, that's a word that uh, showed up in Matthew and Mark at the transfiguration. It's the same word. It's this idea of what happened at the transfiguration, what was on the inside, the deity of Christ, the, the glory and his holiness at the transfiguration. Boom, you saw it. It was always there. It was unveiled. And he's, he, he's there on the mountain, and that's where Peter wants to stay. And it's an amazing time. But it, it's this word that shows it's what's on the inside needs to come out and start showing itself on the outside. 1 Corinthians 3.18 also uses this word transformed. And it's again focusing on your Christ likeness. Listen to what 1 Corinthians 3.18 says. We all Christians with unveiled face, referring to when, when Moses had to keep the veil around him for he was in, in, the, temp, or in the tabernacle and, and the glory of God was around him and it, he's, he's glowing and you have to have to veil over him. He says, hey, we live differently now. We have an unveiled face. But we're not walking around glowing in some physical manifestation. We behold as in a mirror the glory of the Lord. We look at Christ in the word and we're transformed into his image from glory to glory. That's what being transformed looks like. You look to Christ in the word and you start to look like him in the world. Holiness will show up. It won't remain hidden. The inside change in our hearts works its way to the outside. It's, it's, it's a metamorphosis, if you will. It's the butterfly. It's the, it's the caterpillar turning into the butterfly. That's what it looks like for us in Romans 12, 2, to start to change and look distinct from the world. It's like I was, how does this kind of imagine yourself? And I worked at a carnival in high school, and so this illustration, here you go. If like you were this one of these inflatable versions of yourself, completely deflated at the bottom of a pile of lousy prizes, the world will call it. And you have no ability in and of yourself to rise up out of that pile of lousy prizes. But here's, here's this transformation. Everything's on top of you, but you're going to change from the inside. And by the renewing of your mind, by something getting from your head to your heart to your hands, 
So imagine this, this air pump going into that deflated version of you under the pile of lousy prizes, and it fills your head. But you know what? It's going to go down into your heart and into your hands and your extremities, and then arises like the phoenix out of all the, the elephants and the snakes and all that stuff. Whoa, there's you floating. Why? Because the inner thing has just blown up, and it's pushed everything aside. And there's a real authentic Christian there, distinct from the pile of prizes of the world. You can thank my carnival experience for that. That's the process by which we are being changed from the inside out, and it starts with a renewing of our mind. It's what we're putting in that's going to show up on the outside. Being transformed is actually a command, but it's also in the passive tense in the Greek. So you're being commanded to do something that's being done to you actively engaged in a process that you're the recipient of, and that's what we already talked about in Philippians 2.13, your sanctification. That you're being transformed, but you're commanded to do it because God is working something in you that you're working out. How do you work it out? You renew your mind. How do you renew your mind? I think it looks something like this. You wake up in the morning. You got to renew your mind. It's renewed, right? You don't need to get a totally new one. You already have it. You're in Christ. But you got to renew it with the truths of the word of God. Understanding who you are and the blessings of God's mercy to you in Christ. To live your life that day for him. So you wake up, but what do you really want to do? You want to hit snooze. Or even if you don't, you want to just immediately look at your phone and see what's on your day or what you missed since you went to bed last night. And then there's the word of God. And I know in ideal ways... Uh, If we were super spiritual, we would wake up, boom, our eyes are open. We just hold our hand out and like Thor's hammer, the Bible just goes, boom. And we just open it and ha, you know, the angels are singing and there's your morning devotions. You're being renewed. But it doesn't work out that way. You wake up groggy and you're just praying uh, the psalm, open my eyes literally that I might see wonderful things in your law. I just need them to open. And you're splashing water in your face and you're drinking your coffee and and that's the reality of it. And that's you working it, doing something about it, not being passive. Now, God's going to work the transformation in you. You come to the word of God. The Holy Spirit is illuminating. He's the teacher. He's bringing light to your mind through the word. And he's warming the affections of your heart. So he's inspiring you and you're trusting the process but it's still work and you're still responsible for it. You're being called to renew your mind. And what's the payoff? Says it right there. You do this so that you may prove, you may show what the will of God is in your life, that which is good and acceptable and perfect. Who doesn't want to sign up to do the will of God? I mean, that's what we're here to do now. We're born again. We become followers of Christ. We want to do his will, don't we? We know that that's where his blessing is and walking in his ways and doing his will. Oh, how do you get there? How, it's, it's the transformation from the within by the renewing of your mind that gets you there. So you have to ask yourself the question in light of verse 2. Instead of being conformed by the way the world just says, uh, just do what you feel today. Take a day off. You'll be fine. I'm saying that's not what Scripture is commanding me to do. And the promise is in that if I give my best, if I just give it a good try today, God, you'll be faithful to lead me to do what your will is for my life. Is to, is to follow you, is to bring glory to you. And that's a distinct life from the world. And, and me not being conformed to it, but be transformed. But he doesn't end there. 
How does this transformed life look? It's not just something inward only, but it's a way that you live it out in the world in verse 3 that's really distinct. What's more distinct than you fulfilling verse 3 right here? Through the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you, not to think more highly of himself than he ought to think. Does that stand out from the world if you live that way? Unless you never kind of uh, take some joy in, in boasting in yourself, of course. This strikes right at our pride, which is the way the world wants us to operate, right? The world says, hey, you th- should think more highly of yourself. You know, climb your way to the top. Don't let anybody stop you. And Paul's saying right here, hey, well, you're going to push back to the world's ways and be transformed within. And one of the first ways it shows up is in humility. You're not thinking more highly of yourself than you ought to think. I mean, the only person that had any right to think highly of himself was Jesus, perfectly doing the will of God all the time. But to humble ourselves is to have a right estimation of our own limitations and weaknesses and shortfalls. And so he uses, don't don't think more highly of yourself than you should. Stand out in the world by thinking as to have sound judgment. What does that word sound judgment mean? It's a word for sober-mindedness, sensibility, temperance. What's the opposite of that? Just worldly speaking. Intoxication, inebriation, drunkenness. This isn't about drinking, but this is about the mindset. Somebody that's, so this is where you can go with this. Somebody that doesn't have sound judgment, that isn't sober-minded, they're drunk. Is there anybody, is there a better picture anywhere in society of somebody who has exactly the wrong estimation of themselves than a drunk? Truly. They can do anything. And they'll say anything. And they're the best at everything. And then they collapse. And they need somebody to help them up. They're out of their own mind, their own judgment. They're anything but sound in their thinking. And Paul is saying, if you're going to live a life distinct from the world, you have to think about yourself in a way where you're not intoxicated with yourself. Wow. Have you ever been intoxicated with yourself, so focused on you, so inebriated on your own needs and wants and desires that you have no sensibility of your relationship to the world around you because you've just turned so inward, so all about you? And Paul says that's not the way the Christian who's devoted to God and distinct from the world is to live. Instead, think is to have sound judgment about yourself because everything you have is what? Look at verse 3, the last phrase. Everything you have has been given to you. A measure of faith. Every good gift you have is from our Father above, James 1. It's gifted to you. It's, it's, It's on loan. You didn't earn it. It was earned for you. And so you'll live distinct in the world. And because you have a right estimation of yourself, you'll also live in the church a different way, which is our last relationship to think about. Authentic Christianity is not just devoted to God and distinct from the world. It's dedicated to the church. In verse 4, we're we're just one body of a bunch of people who at our best are thinking rightly about ourselves and what we've been given by God. And by doing that, we can actually what? What? Advance the gospel. Strengthen the church. But you're certainly not going to see that in a church with a bunch of people that think more highly of themselves than they ought. And you've maybe even been part of that kind of church. Where it was everybody was all about their own gifts. Everybody was about, you know, 
I'm this special spiritual snowflake. You know, let me use my gifts however I want. Not how can I use them for someone else's good. Just as we have many members. I mean, you join the church. You're part of the body of Christ. There's going to be others around you. And here's a wonderful thing. We don't all have the same function. This is what humbles us. That God is so kind to each of us individually in Christ to say, this is the gifts I've given you. So you don't need to compare to someone else because I've given them out. And God doesn't play favorites. He doesn't show partiality. He's just thankful to have the gifts you've been given in Christ for someone else's good. Not always about what I can get, but what I can give. Which is, a, I mean, just that paradigm. If you walk away from anything today, that paradigm is throughout Romans 12, 1 to 5. The difference in perspective of your Christian life between what I get versus what I give. Because we can live our lives in the church with this mentality of, I'm sure you've heard it. Maybe you've even said it. You know, I just didn't get anything out of church today. I didn't get anything out of the music, you know. I didn't get anything out of the sermon. And you go throughout the week that way. You know, I didn't get anything out from life group tonight. I didn't get, I didn't get, I didn't get. Who's, who's the God there? You are. And everybody else is supposed to bring themselves on the sacrifice of the altar to you, huh? But see, that's not the way the logic of Romans 12, 1 through 5 works. You're the sacrifice presenting yourself, which means you're giving, not getting. And why you can give is what is based on, back to verse 1, what you've already been given. You've been shown mercy. So the attitude to come to church saying, oh, I didn't get anything. Oh, you haven't. Has your church told you of all the blessings you've been given in Jesus Christ? Imperfectly, I'm sure, the preacher's starting point. The music, not perfect. Serving one another, not perfect. But has your church reflected back to you the mercies of God in your life? Then you've been given something already. So now what do you turn around and do? You give, you present your own life. This is how life in the church works. I'm a, I've been a recipient of God's manifold mercies in my life, so I come to give. If I don't like the music we're singing, who cares? I'm here to give God my worship, not become a music critic. Now, caveat, I hope you're singing theologically sound music. That might be a problem. Maybe you feel like you didn't get something. But I'm telling you, there's a lot of songs that God has used wonderful people throughout church history to write. Different styles and forms. Adapt. It's praise to Him. I mean, sing the Lord a new song. I mean, that was written thousands of years ago. How many new songs since the psalmist? Learn to love them because you're here to what? Give your life. Put it on the altar of sacrifice. Not expect everyone to be sacrificing something for you. Now, here's the cool thing, right? Back to Romans 4 or 12, 4. When we all have that mentality of what can I give, then you actually what? You do get cared for. Because I'm not focused on me and what I get. I care more about what you get. You care more about what I get. And it's just this wonderful interchange of what? 
members of one another. Verse 5, we who are many are one body in Christ and individually members of one another. So as, as I'm here to say, I want to give something today and you show up and I want to give something today and you do that throughout your week, you'll be cared for rather than you turn into kind of this self-protective me-first Christian who wants everything to be done for them. And that's not the way that this works in Romans 12, 1 to 5. Right out of the gates, he's saying, look at everything God has already given you by his mercy and grace. You always have something you're being given by God himself. And now you can turn around and be dedicated, committed, loving the body of Christ because he has first given you so much. There was an illustration, Warren Wearsby, a preacher, wrote about this in thinking about spiritual gifts, because it's going to come right there in 6, 7, and 8, talking about all the different gifts we have. And he said this line, spiritual gifts are tools used to build, not toys to be played with, nor weapons to be wielded. Think about that with the gifts God has given you, believer. They're tools to build up the body of Christ. That's why you've been given gifts. That, uh, go and read 6, 7, and 8 and try to find a gift there that you can terminate on yourself. You won't find it. The gifts you've been given are for the benefit of others. And so we can have this approach, what Wearsby is using this illustration to say is, we can think of our spiritual gifts kind of like selfish children. They're toys for me. And I, should, I, I want them. And I'm, I don't want to share them. I want to do what I want to do. He says, no, that's, that's one wrong way to look at your gifts. But then the other side is they're not weapons to be wielded, to, to lord over people, to be the most important person in the church or in your Bible study or wherever because you have this special gift. That's turning your gift into a weapon for you to become more powerful or whatever you want to call it, to lord over rather than to serve under. He says, no, think of your gifts as the Spirit has given you these tools to work things out in the church, trying to build other bricks up on top of the chief cornerstone, Christ our Savior. And so the church is a building, it's used the metaphor. He's the foundation where the bricks, so the church is a body, he's the head where the parts, or the church is a family, God is our father, Christ is our brother, we're brothers and sisters in Christ, or the church is, is, a, is a husband and wife, Ephesians 5. And what's the common link in all of those illustrations, metaphors? Commitment to one another. Like a real commitment to one another. As I've used the picture before, I didn't leave my hand over in my seat when I came up to preach. It stays with me. I'm glad these bricks have a real relationship to each other in this room. They stay together. Otherwise, whoosh, commitment, dedication. And that's what we're to have. Romans 12, 4, and 5. We who are many are one body in Christ and individually members of one another. So where does this land? Well, we have a few ways with this uh, you know, can express itself practically in the months to come. One, in our devotion to God, as you look ahead to your summer, what, what's your summer plan? How do you want to grow in your devotion to the Lord? How do you want to be transformed? Do you have a plan for your mind to be renewed? You have a book you're thinking about reading and, and putting into some margins in your day to carve out some extra time to grow in Christ. And that can relate to your dedication. See, these overlap to the church because you could do this as a life group together. You know, there's a, a study in Proverbs as we're going to start that next week for June, July out at the uh, Connect Desk. 
a 12-week study in Proverbs that you can do as a life group together or individually. Why? To grow more in your devotion to the Lord. But in that, you're also having a dedication to this church. There's just practical ways you could do it. There's some other books out there, uh, Knowing God by J.I. Packer. You could pick that book up because on Sunday nights in June, not next week, but the following for three weeks, I'll be teaching about the attributes of God that can supplement your study. All these ways why for you to grow in your devotion to the Lord, to know Him more, know Him personally. Your dedication to one another, gathering with each other, dinner at each other's homes, looking around this church and people that you know, seeing if they need help, seeing if they, a husband and wife need to go out on a date and you can watch their kids. This is just life and the body together. Do you have a plan for your summer to enhance that, to stimulate each other on, to love and good deeds? I was convicted as I was meditating and asking myself these questions this week. You know, I was thinking how much time I've put into trying to uh, design, to architect a perfect summer break for me and my family. The vacation spots, the hotel, which beach. Have I designed the same, with the same goal in mind or good in mind for their spiritual growth? And a vacation is a good and pleasing thing to the Lord. Not saying anything negative about that. But if I showed that same care to map out the roads, to know the stops, spiritually speaking for my family, am I as eager for that as I am for the other? And then distinction from the world. How are you going to live your Christian life in the neighborhood you're in, the people you're around? Intentional with the gospel, wanting them to get to know you. I was I was uh, convicted listening to a buddy of mine who's a church planner. Um, he's been at it for about two or three years down in Miami, and he's, he's seeing God's kindness uh, come back as, as people are coming to the church. But he said, you know, he, he joined a gym a couple years back um, to just build relationships with unbelievers in the neighborhood. And he said, you know, maybe 25, 30, he's kind of built a friendship with. And he lets them know what he's doing there in Miami, planning a church. And he said, you know, in two years... Two out of 25 or 30 have actually come to his church. But he said over half of them have been in his home for a meal when he's invited them. Which odds are better? People showing up that you know here or being willing to come to your home? Is that a sacrifice you're willing to make? To to, to show people that you want to just invite them into your life? Spend time with them? Which opportunity might they respond to more likely? These are ways in which our Christianity starts to look and sound like the real thing. Devotion to God, distinction from the world, and dedication to the church. And we do all of this again because we've been shown the mercy of God and we want to present our bodies back to Him, a sacrifice to His good pleasure. Let's pray. Father, we thank You for Your Word this morning. We thank You for its power to convict us, to grow us, to challenge us with the ultimate goal of being more like Christ. So we praise you for that today. Thank you that we could come in Romans 12, 1 through 5 is a needed balm for our soul to take all the riches that we have in our salvation and to turn them outward to others. So we praise you for it. We thank you for it. Even now in this last song that we sing, maybe may it spring up in us just devotion in our heart, love for you, dedication to you because you've been kind to us in Christ. We pray in his name. Amen.